All right, we're going to get started in a series for this Advent season. We're calling this the Gospel According to Ruth. Now, Ruth is a person, but Ruth is also the name of a book in the Bible, in the Old Testament, several, several books in to the Old Testament. You might think, well, wait a second, Old Testament, Ruth, isn't that all like way before Jesus was born? How can we do an Advent series from the Old Testament? Well, um, we're going to find out if that's possible or not. There's four chapters in the book of Ruth, and we're going to spend, uh, we're going to get through one chapter uh, a week, Sunday by Sunday, and to try to, try to, uh, kind of see how the gospel is proclaimed in this book of Ruth. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and start finding that, but let me, um, set the stage or the, the, the context, the historical context for this very important story. Uh, so let me take you back to a man named Abraham. We've, we've recently this year talked through the story of Abraham and Sarah, but let me just remind you that Abraham, or Abram initially, and his name was changed to Abraham, was, was called out of what would today be Iraq, and God called him and his family to, to move, and they, they went kind of part way, and then uh, God said to Abraham himself, I'm gonna, I want you to go to the land that I'm showing you. And so Abraham, without knowing where he was going, went and followed uh, what, how God led him and led him to the place that today we would call Israel or that time it was called Canaan or Canaan. If you travel in Israel with a guide, uh, they will tell you it's pronounced Canaan. And I don't know how to say that. So I say Canaan. And um, there are several in our room here today that just returned from a trip to Israel. Uh, well, late last night and uh, we're awake or at least our bodies are here. Um, <laughs> We, we rolled in about 10 p.m. last night uh, after a 14-hour flight. And uh, that's, you know, it's exciting to travel, but 14-hour flight is kind of punishment for some past sin. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's grueling. But we're here and gladly here. And so there's Abram in, in the land of what's today Israel. And, and Abram had been promised by God that he would be the father of a multitude of people. His descendants would be like the stars in the sky and the sand in the ocean, but they weren't having any children. They weren't able to conceive. And, and we talked about this a, a couple of months ago, how they, they thought, well, this is not happening. We've got to make this happen. Be careful of those moments where you're trying to make something happen. If God's not in it, don't force it. But Abraham uh, marries his, his wife's servant, Hagar, and they have a child, and, and the child's name is Ishmael. And God says, no, that's not my plan. And so a little more time goes by and finally Abram's wife Sarah in her very senior years well, well, well past the age of childbearing is pregnant and gives birth to a son, Isaac. Isaac marries and he also has children. This time a pair of sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau is actually the older of the two but Jacob is kind of sneaky and he gets access to the, the right of the firstborn. So now we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac and Jacob. We call those, in Bible literature in the Old Testament, we call those the patriarchs, the fathers of the nation of Israel. And, 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 and Jacob, he himself marries, in fact, he, he marries a pair of sisters, which is, I mean, it's not hard to figure out that's going to be a bad idea, but um, that's what happens. And, and together they have 12 children. Twelve sons, other children, but twelve sons. And Jacob's name is changed, God changes his name to Israel. Oh, now that's a name you recognize. His twelve sons become what we call the twelve tribes of Israel. But one of those twelve sons is, 
is a, is a well, uh, kind of the favorite of his father. He's the second youngest and, and he's kind of gets preferred status. He's sort of the shining star in the family. We'd call him the, the tall poppy in the group. And we know we, we hate tall poppies. We like to chop them down because we don't want anybody to stand out or, or think they're better than us or somehow come across that way. And we, we push them aside. So, so the ten older brothers devised a plan and they, they got rid of their brother. They sold him to slave traders. They, 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 he was, he was trafficked into slavery in Egypt and he was off their hands done. No more need to worry about the troublesome little brother who thinks he's better than everybody else. Whew. Finally. But wouldn't you know how, how things work? And, and over time, there they are in the land of Canaan and, and there's a famine in the land and they, they need food. They're, they're starving. They need food. And so they, they are sent off to this land of Israel, I mean to Egypt, where they've heard that Egypt has plenty of food and so they go to Egypt to buy food. And wouldn't you know it, their little brother who had been suffered and put in prison and, and, and had a terrible time, who had then miraculously been elevated to the second highest position of authority in the entire land, and they appear before their brother Joseph, unknowingly, not realizing that it's Joseph, and they appear before him to buy food. And when that transpires, eventually they figure out who that brother is, and and the Pharaoh says to, to his wonderful uh, Prime Minister Joseph, he says, you need to get your whole family down here. They're, they're starving up there. Get them to Egypt. And so they move the entire clan, which is large and prosperous, and they, they settle in Egypt, and, and they flourish there. But the generations go by, and, and, and a Pharaoh comes to power who does not remember Joseph. He doesn't know anything about that Joseph. And sees a, an ethnic group of people that that would make a great labor force. And he enslaves this nation of people. But under slavery, they continue to, to flourish, at least to multiply. And, and they're there for 430 years in Egypt, and languishing under slavery. And they cry out to God, and God raises up a leader, by a guy by the name of Moses. And Moses, reluctantly at first, but obediently, leads God's people out of Egypt through the wilderness, off to the promised land. So we have the, the era of the patriarchs, then we, then we have the, the, the slavery in Egypt, and then we have what's called the exodus, leading out. And, and as they lead out, Moses brings them to the promised land, and they, they panic. And they, they, they fail to trust God, and says, God says, fine, I'm going to put you in a holding pattern for 40 years, let this generation die off, and, and I'll take your kids into the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. And, so then they're led into the promised land by a guy named Joshua. Joshua had been, a, uh, been mentored by Moses. He'd been Moses' personal assistant for all those years in the wilderness. And so he understood about leadership. And he he'd, he'd had the same experiences that Moses had had before, face-to-face before God. Joshua is a great leader. And he understands military strategy. And he understands leadership. But he's a man. He's a godly man. He says, me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so Joshua then takes his people and leads them into what is we call the promised land. And, and area by area, they begin to take control, to take ownership of the land, defeating the people that are there. We call that period the, the period of conquest, patriarchs, slavery, exodus, conquest. And our story is going to pick up near the after that season of conquest, because what followed that was what we call the period of the judges. Now, the Israelite people were not led by a king initially. They, they, were, they were not a democracy. They were, they were to follow God's laws. 
But the problem is they seem to have really trouble doing that. And, and, and there's, a, there's a line, and there's a book in the Bible called Judges. And in the, there's a line in the book of Judges says, And each one did as seemed right in his own eyes. It kind of went their own way. And God would raise up a leader. Sir, can we go to that uh, slide of the map of the, of the 12 tribes in the time of the Judges? Some of the Judges' names are, are listed there in the places where they live. But they went back and forth in that whole area, just settling disputes, but also functioning prophetically, functioning as, as military generals in a variety of ways that they continue to, to lead. And a, a judge would rise up and unite the nation, and then he would die, and the nation would fall away and, and suffer oppression from the, their enemies. And that cycle continued up and down, up and down, the period of the judges. And so we're going to get into this book of Ruth, and we'll go to the next slide. In this time of Ruth, we're, we're in this area. Uh, can you just go to that next map, if, if we can? And uh, see where it says kind of middle top Bethlehem, Judah, where our story is going to be there. And across in red, you see Moab. Now, if you were to go to Israel today, and if you were to take a, a trip, and you go to the, a resort on the Dead Sea, you'd be on the left side of the Dead Sea where Israel is. But you'd be able to look across the, the Sea of Salt and see a mountain range, and that's Moab. Today it's in the country of Jordan, but that's Moab. And so that's where all this story is going to take place, this, this story of Ruth. This is a couple generations before they transition from judges to kings, being ruled by kings. And this book of, of Ruth that, that takes place about 1,200 years before the time of Christ, over 3,000 years ago, it's important for a number of reasons. One is, as we go through these four chapters, you can see how it sheds some light on cultural practices of the day. You're going to see how it sheds light on some of the geopolitical realities of the day, that there's different nations. If you, if you think this is a new idea to have different countries and, and boundaries, international boundaries and so on, that's nothing new. That's always been going on. This book is going to prepare the reader, that's us, from, from understanding how, how, how God's people went from being ruled by judges to being ruled by kings. Most importantly, this book will enlighten us to God's saving activity in history, how he's always been at work in history. Not to mention, it's a love story. And it's got exquisite detail and intrigue and suspense and surprise and a little bit of juicy details. It's a great story. And so that's where we're going to be. We're going to spend four weeks in this book. I'm going, to read kind of the, the, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's kind of a long passage, so you may remain seated today for this. But if you've got your Bible open, I'd like you to find Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Four little chapters. And it begins this way. Ruth, chapter 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and his two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech is a name that means the Lord is king. And his wife was Naomi. And Naomi's name means pleasant. And their two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi was left 
with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about ten years later, both Malon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Verse 6 says, Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed His people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back! Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. And then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. You can just imagine this heavy moment at the roadside, just grieving and weeping together. Verse 10 says, No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? Let me pause there for a moment and just explain what the expectation was. Let's say that, that um, if that if I was living in that time and I died, if I have a brother, my brother would be expected to marry my widowed wife and hopefully uh, they would have a son together and that son would carry my name forward. So that was the expectation. Is just kind of moves down the line. It was so important to preserve the line or the name of each son. And so that's what she's referring to in verse 12. It says, No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not. My daughters, things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord Himself has raised His fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. You'll see a note in your Bible that says Mara is a name that means bitter. For the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? Verse 22 says, So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, a young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. And that's your first foreshadowing clue of what's to come. And we'll stop there. As we work our way through this this whole account, this whole story, I hope one of the things that becomes very clear to you is this, and if you're taking notes today, you can write this down, is that God works the long game. 
God works the long game. Not that it's a game, but you think about those you know, really great chess players that can think, think 12 or 15 moves ahead of you or 30, I don't know how, how they think. God works the long game. Back in 1989, there was a, a business um, consultant who published a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a guy named Stephen Covey. Anybody remember that from almost 30 years ago? And that was like the book you were supposed to read in every business. I, I, I didn't read it. And uh, it was, I'm told it was a really good book. One of the seven habits of highly effective people, he said, the number two was that the highly effective person begins with the end in mind. You start this project knowing what you want to get to. That's, that's God. God always begins with the end in mind. He, he plays the long game. In other words, God had a plan for your salvation long before He enacted the solution, Jesus Christ, His Son. And in keeping with God's plan, Jesus needed to be born in Israel from the tribe of Judah. Specifically, Jesus needed to be born in Bethlehem to this couple, Boaz and Ruth. I mean, not born to them, but he had to come from the line of Boaz and Ruth so that he could be born to his parents, Joseph and Mary. God was at work in all those things. He, was, he had his plan worked out long beforehand, keeping with prophecy and how how that would work. And so he's working the long game. So for all that to happen, somehow Naomi had to suffer this triple tragedy of losing her husband and losing her sons. And it made no sense to her. In fact, she thought God was against her. She thought God was, had raised his fist against her, that God was the one making her bitter. That doesn't make any sense to me either. Why would she have to suffer like that? That doesn't seem right. doesn't seem fair. But she was not aware of the whole picture. She didn't have the benefit that we have looking back on it. She didn't, she couldn't see everything that was going to happen. She couldn't see what God was setting up, what God was preparing for way down the road. And somehow she had to experience these things. And there are events in your life that simply do not make sense at the time. Some big disappointment, some loss or some episode of grief. And it's something we think, this doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. There's no way to explain it. There's no way to justify it. You just say, I, I do not understand why this needs to happen. God, it's like you're out to get me. Maybe it's not even a negative ex- experience. It's just an event. It's, it, it's a class you took in college or a job you had for a couple of years that didn't really kind of work out. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that happen? But then finally, years later, down the road, you realize, oh, oh, I get it. Now that prepared me for this over here. It happens again and again. When I came out of Bible college, my plan was to work in missionary broadcasting work. And so I went to broadcast school. And um, after a year, I realized that I wasn't really very good at it. And so um, that, that didn't really pan out. And I thought, well, that was kind of a dumb waste. But you know, the things I do today, the best of them I learned in that year of broadcast school, not really in seminary. And it's, it's looking back and like, oh, it makes sense later. So, the bottom line is that we're not privileged to know everything. We just don't get to see everything. And we have got to make a decision. Am I going to trust God and God's long-range work or not? Naomi also teaches us an important Lesson, I think, for those of you coping with hardship. 
these days. One of the best ways to get through your own pain is to care for others. To reach out, to be a conduit of God's grace and kindness. You see, Naomi really could have been Mara, bitter, the rest of her life. Nobody would have blamed her for it. Oh, she's gone through a lot. Yeah, that, that, Naomi, I, I don't blame her for being really upset and depressed and angry. And Yeah, she's really suffered. But instead, instead of living there, she, she made it a priority to help Ruth. In fact, her, both her daughters-in-law, starting with, girls, don't stay with me. Go back home. You'll get remarried. You'll, you'll have a family. You'll, you'll get reestablished. You've got good prospects if you go back to... Listen, I'd love to have you with me, but you need to go where it's better for you. She really cared for them. And then you're going to see in the chapters to come in Ruth how she continues to really kind of strategize uh, for Ruth's benefit. Ruth is now the foreigner as Naomi had been in Moab. And so she gets it. She understands what that's like. And all this is just to say that God has the the long game in mind. He's working the plan long term for your favor, for greater things than just your comfort or your preferences or your bank account. God has the end in mind and it's a good end. Even though it might be hard now, even though it may not make sense now and He invites you to lean into Him and lean into His love for you and say, God, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust you in all these things. It might be helpful for us to recognize that Naomi reflects the, the character of God in all of this. God's gracious character in the way she loves and protects and, and cares for her daughter-in-law. Ruth was an outsider to the Hebrew community. Naomi was an insider. And, and, and outsiders in that time were not always welcome. Certainly not in inter-ethnic marriages like that. Wasn't necessarily um, forbidden in this case, it was not expressly forbidden, but she was an outsider. I don't know those of you who are, um, you know, I don't know how many married couples, married outside of your ethnic circle or your kind of established circle, and you, and you realize like, um, wow, this is this has some challenges to it. I've known some couples who don't even um, speak the same language. One time we we had these neighbors that were um, neither of them. Sp- spoke English very well, and they, one spoke Romanian, and one was from Malaysia, I think, and, and they had a very hard time communicating with each other, and let alone everybody around them, and like, man, that's a, that's a hard marriage. That's really tough. Um, so some of you know what that experience is, like crossing lines of your kind of established community. It's not easy. And Naomi reminds us that God welcomes the foreigner. If you're writing notes, you can write that down. God welcomes the foreigner. Now, let's talk about immigration for a moment, because that's never a controversial subject. Um, whether it's legal immigration or otherwise, uh, it, it's, it's a real present topic for us. Um, our city is a mix of, of those of you who were born here, maybe you grew up here, maybe you've been here for generations, and on the other end are those who came here recently. Uh, you know, we moved here by, by choice for education or a job, or maybe we were moved here by our parents, um, maybe, maybe out of desperation for a better life in some way. Legally or otherwise, we, we're here. And in this city, we understand 
about foreigners and we understand about immigration. We're not a single color city and I'm really grateful for that. So for us, the migrations in this account are not really hard for us to understand. We understand people move all the time for jobs, for education, for other advancement. But there's some obvious challenges in this account. First of all, I think that what was probably meant as a temporary move, right? There's a famine. There's, we can't feed our family. Let's go to Moab. We hear things are better there. Maybe, maybe Elimelech got a job as a carpenter or, or maybe they were farming over there or who knows what they were doing. Uh, and so off they go. That was probably meant to be temporary, but then the kids got married and they settled down and they had all of a sudden what was meant to be maybe a couple years is 10 years. If the boys hadn't died, they probably would have stayed. Sometimes we, we, we mean for something just to be temporary. We're just going to try something for a long All of a sudden we're like, oh wow, I've been doing this for a long time. I'm kind of stuck. Sometimes God needs to do something to move us on. The other thing is that the Hebrew people were to be somewhat ethnically pure. And so a foreign marriage is a big deal. Potentially unacceptable, not necessarily forbidden. But in the case of Moabites, you're allowed to marry a Moabite, but then ten generations of your kids were not allowed to enter the holy place, the tabernacle or later the temple. Ten generations, just because it was an interracial marriage. Pretty harsh, it seems. So can Ruth really belong in this community as an outsider? Can she belong before she believes? There's a word I learned years ago in college. I don't get to use it very often, so I'll use it today. Uh, Ethnocentricity. See, I can't even say it. Ethnocentricity or ethnocentrism. Where we're essentially all hardwired to think our own ethnic understanding is the best. Like, we know what food tastes good. We speak the best language. We, uh, you know, we, we just get it. And we travel to some other place. I'm like, I cannot believe people eat this garbage. And they sound so weird when they talk. Um, although we did eat some pretty good food, didn't we, last week, guys? If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you've got to go. It's, um, it's, it's a great experience. There's a picture of us on the back table in the fellowship center. You can look at that. But we just have this idea that we're we're in the middle. We're a center. Everything kind of revolves around us. We get it. We know how to do things. And anybody who doesn't kind of do it our way is kind of dumb. You know, that's ethnocentricity. Maybe instead of throwing around the epithet of racist, we should just, you know, use the term ethnocentrist. Oh, you're just such an ethnocentrist. But it doesn't quite have the same force of insult, does it? So can't really use that. But in this story of migration, Bethlehem to Moab, back to Bethlehem, the text of all four chapters will identify Ruth as the Moabite woman or the, the foreigner, the Moabite, as some translations put it, nine times in four chapters. And it's only when she has been, okay, here's a spoiler alert for you, only when she has been redeemed by her marriage to a man named Boaz is that identifier dropped. Until that point, she's the foreigner, she's the foreigner, she's the foreigner, she marries and she's fully embraced in the community and we don't talk her about as a foreigner anymore. Now, why would a foreigner like Ruth be welcomed into this ethnically tight Jewish community at all? Why would she be given a place of significance in God's story of salvation? You can read in Matthew chapter 1 that the, the whole genealogy of Jesus, the, the forefathers of Jesus, and there's four women mentioned in there, and one of them is Ruth. 
she's actually mentioned she's a foreigner and she's one of the ancestors of Jesus. Why would, why would God do that? Why would God take a foreigner and, and, and put her in the line of Jesus? Because it's a picture of how salvation works. Because you and I, we're outsiders. We're foreigners to the kingdom of God. And yet God made a way for us to be transformed and transferred into this community. This, to, to be a child of God, like we just sang, when we trust in Christ to rescue us. And look, you may feel like a foreigner in any number of ways. I don't mean necessarily by ethnic identity, but maybe you're single or single again and everything in the church and it seems to all revolve around couples and families and you feel it. You feel like you're on the outside on stuff. Or or maybe you struggle with physical health or, or mental health and everyone else just seems to be fine and do everything and get along and, and you know that you have limitations and and in it's frustrating and you feel like an outsider. You might forget that everybody has issues. Some, some are just better at hiding them than others. Or, or maybe you feel like an outsider because your friends have money and, and you don't. Or, or your friends have kids and you weren't able to. Or, or you're the only one in your circle who has... You have no stories of college days. And all, all your friends talk about, oh man, when we were in college, you think, I, can't, I don't have any of those stories. I didn't go to college. It's hard for you. you. You feel it. In some way, you feel like you just don't fit in. And if that's you, this book is for you. This story is for you because God welcomes you and you have a place with Him as the foreigner, as the outsider. And for those of us who are believers in Jesus, we have the opportunity, the privilege, the obligation even, to be the ones who welcome the outsiders. Whether that outsider is a refugee from Syria or, or a recently widowed neighbor or, or someone who's just kind of on their own in some way. You notice it, but you're not sure what to do. And, and our job, whether they're in the family of faith or not, is to welcome the foreigners. And it's on you and it's on me to do so. And I mean more than just simply a friendly hello. We want to welcome them into community. It's easy to be friendly. What I'm talking about is being friends to people. Friendly is easy. I can be friendly to anybody. But being a friend to someone is very different. That's what we're called to be. Now, even though Ruth was stepping toward faith, she didn't get her new identity, as I said, until she was kind of rescued or redeemed by her Savior, Boaz. But that'll come later. Right now we have Ruth and Naomi in this potentially disastrous situation. In this culture, a woman's only kind of realistic Career option was to be a wife. That, that was kind of about our one and only option. You had to be a wife if you were going to have any success. And they didn't have the social safety nets that we, we have today. And so these two widows have a problem. Even, we're going to see that even the basics of food on the table is not guaranteed for them. And, and Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi had no means to save themselves. They couldn't save each other. And they were desperate. But what you're going to see in, in these four Sundays is that they were able to help each other in ways that led to their salvation. And this is a third thing you can write down today is that Naomi and Ruth were a blessing to each other because insiders and outsiders need each other. Insiders and outsiders need each other. You know, you might be one of those people, many of you in this room, many in this room, you love to serve others, you give generously, you help without being asked, you, you speak encouraging words to your friends and to me and to other church leaders. You love to help with people 
who are on the outside and need help, and yet you have a hard time accepting help from others. You have a hard time accepting generosity or encouragement for yourself, whether from a friend or from a stranger or an outsider. You know, I've shared with this with you before. Like, I love to help my neighbors, but I've found in different places that I've lived, it's not until I actually accept help that I can actually begin to have a friendship with my neighbors. It's not until I can go over and say, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Or, hey, can you pick up my mail when I'm away? Can you? It's not until, we, until I'm willing to receive help that we can have an actual friendship. We've got to be willing to accept help from others. The insiders and the outsiders need each other. And Ruth and Naomi were both humble enough to give and to receive help. One was an insider, one was an outsider. They could care for each other. Now, verse. let me take you to verse 16. Because this is this iconic, unforgettable kind of profession of commitment. Where Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Look, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. This is the moment of Ruth's conversion or the beginning of her her salvation. Now, we're we're calling this message series the, the gospel according to Ruth. But how is it possible that this story takes place, that, you know, takes place more than a thousand years before Christ? How can this be about the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ. Gospel is a word that means good news. How can this be about the good news of Jesus when it's so far ahead of Jesus? Well, because in verses 16 and on to 17, Ruth's declaring she's abandoning the pagan worship practices of the Moabites. She's leaving her gods behind and she's putting her faith now in the one true God based on Naomi's testimony. She's turning from sin and she's turning to God, an act we call repentance. And that's the gospel being foreshadowed here, that you and I are lost and apart from God, but that we can be saved by putting both our faith and our footsteps in the way of God. It's both. It's both my faith and it's my footsteps in the midst of things that don't make sense, in the midst of, in the case of these ladies, in the midst of their grief and loss and unexplainable tragedy. They said, we're going to trust God. And obviously the book is about the Moabite woman, Ruth, but I just need to finish with a comment about Naomi. Because through no fault of her own, she, she, was, she had been living in a land far away from her community of God's people. She still had faith, but she was away, away from God's people. She, she had suffered loss. She blamed God for it. And, and, and so in a way she was spiritually in another country. And some of us have experienced this, or maybe we're experiencing it right now. You believe, you trust God, you you know you should have more faith, but you're feeling that distance. You're feeling separated from God, like like you're living in another country, spiritually speaking. And you're kind of, you backed away from the regular fellowship of God's people. And and you're feeling it. Maybe you feel like, like God let you down, or He hurt you. Or disappointed you. didn't come through for you like you expected that he would. Like you, you thought you were promised. And I'm telling you, you need to come back into the community. And, 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 you know, and that's being here Sunday by Sunday with God's people. Being in a class or a small group or a Bible study. Some place where you're getting regular connection with God's people. Because others need you and you need others. The insiders and the outsiders need each other. Again... Why would this book be our text for the Advent season? 
It's because this is a message like the candle that I blew out this morning. It's a message of hope. It's a message of hope. You may have experienced some hard things this year. And I want you to know that God still loves you. He's not abandoned you. He's working a long game in your life. He's working the long-range plan in your life. And there, he, he begins with the end in mind, and it's a good end, even if there's some pain to get there. And in this, this coming season of Christmas, for those of us who just feel like we don't fit in, we don't belong, we don't have the right ethnic heritage, we don't have the right last name, we don't know the right jokes or whatever you feel like you just somehow don't fit. Can I just say, this is your season to place yourself on the grace of God and place yourself on the mercy of God, recognizing He has a long-range plan at work for you. And can we be the people who embrace the foreigners among us? And by foreigners, I mean those who seem like they're on the outside a little bit. And no matter no matter kind of who they are, just say, I'm going to embrace them. God's on your side. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this moment. We thank you for this season. We get to remember and celebrate again your son, Jesus. We thank you for all the you know, fun parts of gifts and lights and cookies and all those things. But Lord, we don't want to miss this amazing, amazing thing that Jesus, you came to be one of us so that we could have a relationship with God the Father. And Lord, there are people in this room right now who when I talk about feeling an outsider, they're saying, that's me. That's what I feel all the time. I feel like I don't fit. I don't belong. And no one really accepts me for who I am. God, I pray that that person would experience acceptance from you this season and acceptance from your people this season. And for those of us who are guilty of not really embracing the foreigner, God, would you help us to do that? Would you show us how, to, how we can do that more effectively? God, I thank you that you're working a long plan and we want to be faithful to you through it all. Thank you for welcoming us when we were strangers to you and you welcomed us in. We give you our, our thanks today as we, as we seek to be a blessing to one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.